This episode is not sponsored, but we encourage you to help support the small businesses, charities and organisations that we mention. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Our Circle. I'm Rhiannon. And I'm Jess. And today we are joined by a special guest, John, also known as on Instagram, MJ Lil J. Hey. <laughs> hey, guys. John is the host of Rhythm and Britain and Militant Entertainment, and we're very, very lucky to have him with us today. So thank you so much for, for joining us. No problem at all, no problem. Thank you for having me. You're quite the entrepreneur when it comes to music ventures anyway. So you have Militant Entertainment, Militant Studios, and you are a radio host for Rhythm and Britain. I mean, first of, have you always had a passion for music? Is this something that you've always wanted to be involved in it's it's a weird one I feel like um for me it's always been a part of my life so I'm Nigerian Nigerians are always always singing we're always the loudest in the room and growing up in the church music is always there you can't really go to church and there's not any music just be a bit awkward so (laughs) music has always been there um and then I don't know I think for me when I was a child I was at my child minus house and MTV this is when MTV was the thing back in the Mm -hmm. early 2000s she would have to kick me out of the house because I'd end up watching um, music videos. It was MTV or Kiss or like Cartoon Network. That was the only things I'd be watching all the time. <laughs> so it's always been ingrained in me, music. And I think it's just, it's, someone said it's the, um, the language of life. So yes. I think you can't really escape music. Mm. Unless I think you're just a robot, but that's really it. I think even robots are learning music. So. <laughs> <laughs> so music's always been part of your life, but have you always wanted to host things or create music platforms yourself? Or is that something that's just developed over time? I've always wanted to. I think, you know, there's, there's children that used to say to their parents, like, I'm a writer, write a, a, a letter to a record label, and then they will see me and then I'll change everyone's life. I was that child. So that's that's always been there. But I think as I grew older, you kind of realise there's, there's more than being like a rapper or a singer there's stuff behind the scenes and mm-hmm. I think what's the tv show everyone used to watch Blue PR and um all those type of stuff on BBC you kind of realized there's certain people that actually do stuff that's not right. musically aligned might be hosting awards then you know you grew up I grew up on Reggie Yates and all um yes. Fern Cotton and all those people mm-hmm. and then MTV you know you see in Trevor Nelson and then I think that's what kind of caught me to it right okay cool can you just tell our listeners actually a bit about Rhythm and Bread and your radio show and what they can expect from it and sort of how it began as well so I finished uni I did four years of university radio Shout out to my fam. And <laughs> I started work, you know, nine to five, you have to make your money. But I didn't want to lose my passion because a lot of my friends who finished uni and started, they said they're going to be creative. They all said, you know what, I'm going to do one year of hard work and then I'm going to go back to my passion. And mm-hmm. before they know it, they've done 25 years. They've not touched their talent or creative aspects yeah. at all. So I said, you know what, in the first six months, I have to just, whatever opportunity comes, I'm going to jump into it. So what I did was I found a radio station called Tribe Urban Radio. And I said, you know what, let me just jump into it. And I said, what can I do on the show? They were like, what do you want to do? I said, rap music. They're like, that's gone. Afro Afro music, that's gone. And I was like, what's left R&B? I was like, I like R&B, so I'll jump into that. So that's how it started. And before I even knew what I was doing, I kind of was like, you know, let me just let me just go over my old R&B days, 2000s, the Alicia Keys, um, what's the man, um, Usher, all those people. And then digging into it, there's a massive, massive R&B scene in the UK that mm. I think at the time when I started two years ago, wasn't really being talked about. 
And I kind of thought, you know what, let me just create an avenue for R&B artists in the UK. And I blinked and now R&B in the UK, I think, is probably about to be as big as drill or bigger than grime. I think R&B in the UK is starting to be there. So the R&B as a whole is just to really shine a light on the amazing R&B talent we have in the United Kingdom. I think it's brilliant that you're doing this. Jess and I were talking about this beforehand um, Mm. before we started recording and we were saying how it's so important what you're doing because when you think about international artists, for example, like say like Cardi B, this was the example that we were sort of thinking about. Any song of hers that comes out outshines anyone who is just trying to start and trying to get them out. So if they have the unfortunate release date the same day as her, they're not even going to be like get any sort of limelight, you know, and it's sort of... It's a real shame. And it sort of reminded me of another video that I'd seen of a woman in Dubai, because I I follow a couple of artists out there. And um, they were saying how it's hard to sort of talk and be all excited about local artists if no one's even sort of trying to promote them. So what you're doing is brilliant, trying to sort of talk about people in in this country anyway and and their talents as well. I think it's brilliant. Mm. I think it's important as well because I remember this is the weirdest thing. I've one thing I have a really good memory and it's one of the it's a blessing and a curse. When I was in secondary school, there was a commission by the BBC to look at how many UK artists are played. I think this is when the height of when America were just dominating. You British films weren't really that big of a thing. Well they were being made but they weren't being promoted and all right. this type of thing. So when the commission came out, they said British music's not really being played on radio. And I believe from then, 25% of all radio music has to be British talent. And I think that's something that is, is a thing that needs to be put a bit more. I think it's not 25%, I think 50% now. Yeah. I think that's what should be. Because I think before you know it, legends are going to be made. Like we see in the Adele's and the Sheeran's, but there's an Adele and a Sheeran in every single town, city, in the United Kingdom and I think we just need to reach out and do more to help them out. Yeah do you think that that's something then that should actually be applied universally so like in Italy they only play 50% in Spain they only do that in China in, in wherever do you think that that's like a rule that should actually be applied everywhere so that everyone who is artistic is getting that I don't want necessarily a fair opportunity it's not always going to be fair is it but a bit more of a chance. Just a chance yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's twofold I think one big stations need to look for local talent but also there's local people in your area. For instance, your local newspaper, because of the way the internet has gone and killed local news. But back in the day, your local newspaper would be the people that you you reached out to. If you had a concert, you reached out to your, like, for instance, for me, the Richmond Times and saying, I've got a concert here. Can you bring one of your um, representatives to the show? They can write an article about it. It'll be in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a two way to go for it. I think in America, it's different because they've got different states. Yeah. Um, so you reach out to your local state representative and then kind of get big from there. But in the UK, all our radio stations are nationally syndicated. So I think it's just the mindset of try and reach out to the big ones, but there are local ones for like R&B, I'll say Rhythm Britain, Soul Surge, uh, Neo Music, um, R&B Brit. There's so many of them ones that are there and able to be utilised by local people because I think one thing that people do is they try to reach for the stars but not understanding you can get a car local to you and it could take you to those like massive rockets as an example to blast mm. you into the, the moon but I think people don't really realise there's opportunities just next door. Yeah. Mm. I wanted to ask you what do you think that British R&B artists have to offer that maybe? R&B artists in other countries don't? I think it's it's different. I think from America, I think everybody's got a different take from America because just in general is because nobody understands 
what we go through in Britain. So, for instance, I would say Birmingham is a massive R&B hub at the moment. And the reason why they are really sick is because they kind of come from a place where they have a city, but they've got, you know, they've gone through poverty. They've gone through all those hardships. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, the 2008 credit crunch and stuff like that. They can express it through their music. But in America, you can't really do that because it's kind of the same stuff we're hearing again and again since, I would say, since the 60s. American music are just, it's the kind of the same mentality of we're broke or I've got so much money. I've got so many girls around me or... Um, like one or the other. One or the other. But I think in the Britain we've just got a different story to tell. And I think that's what we can bring to the table. I think the same way grime was different from rap in America, because we're coming from a place where the clubs didn't want um, grime and we were saying, we don't care, we'll be on the streets. I think it's the same mentality of R&B. A lot of R&B in the UK are really coming from a place of mental health and family and those type of um, situations where I think people can, in the UK, all around the world, just kind of tap into because it's not about the money, cars, girls, all those type of things. It's just saying, you know what, I don't talk to my sister as I used to do, or I'm trying to be in a different place, but my mind's telling me something. I've lost a friend due to mental illness. I think Jordy Smith, well, she put a song about losing a friend mm. to mental illness and how it hurt her not to say goodbye. Those type of songs are important. Mm. And I think in the R&B scene in the UK, they're really being touched on. So for you, it's not actually about the sound. It's about the context or the content that is being spoken about or, or sung about or rapped about. It, it's actually what they're saying as opposed to how they, how they sound. Yeah, I, I, yeah, 100%. I think it's just the mentality of being authentic. I think mm. in around the world, authenticity is starting to become a big thing because record labels are not picking somebody off the street that they heard in the concert and saying, you know what, we're going to make it into a superstar. There's a DIY culture. For those who remember Ed Sheeran when he came up, his sound was just so different. And then it was just really authentic, like A-team. Yeah, I was was really shocked when that song came out, why it got so big, because I was like, this doesn't sound like anything that we're listening to right now. Why was this so popular? And that's why it was Mm. nothing like it, like everything else. Yeah, just the fact that, you know, I'm in a situation where I've got friends who are trying their best, but they're stuck on a drug. What's the one? I think it's Four Months on Born. Small Bum. Small, thank you very much. Yeah. Small bum. That actually makes me cry listening to that song. I think oh. it's, it really hits. Like when you get further into it and you realise what it's about, then you're just like, oh my God, like really, the, like you said, the meaning, the sentimentality behind it, I think really hits home for some people who are going through that because that's something like losing a baby miscarriage that's something that actually happens really often but we don't hear that most of like you said most songs are like oh look how many girls I've got around me look how much money I've got just like throwing money around rather than like the human Mm. things that people go through day to day so yeah especially for a guy to sing about that actually as well Mm. 100% I think that's what I'm saying is that the songwriting ability in the UK especially has always been there I'm talking about I'm from West London, so Queen started here um, mm. in Feltham. So those type of songwriting abilities always been part of, in the UK. And we've always had this rebellious mindset of the industry wants us to do this, but this is not really what's actually happening mm. on the ground. And I think just the ability to do that in the music scene, that's why I think UK is really being influential around the world because you're seeing Australians copy drill the way we do it here. It's kind of weird hearing Australians on it. But um, <laughs> but it's just the mentality of we're being authentic and it's not about the quote-unquote status quo. It's literally about what's actually happening in our lives. And I think that's the most important part of music. Yeah, going on from that, you have created Militant Entertainment and Militant Studios. 
Can you share with our listeners what that is? So Minute Entertainment, it's called the, um, oh, damn, I forgot the tag name, but it's called um, the Avenue of the Creative. So kind of stems from the mentality of Roman Britain, just showing out the different creatives in the United Kingdom. I personally believe from my travels, I like travel around the United Kingdom. People don't really realize how talented this country or um, nation is. Go to Wales, there's an amazing scene in Wales, especially in the Cardiff region. And in Northwest Wales, there's a massive movement. And then go to Bristol. Uh, Bristol is the capital of creativity in the United Kingdom. I think in, in Europe, I think that's the title in Europe. Go really? to Bristol. Yeah, it is It is immense. You go go down to Bristol and you look at the artwork and you look at the, the beauty of it. You can't, mm. I feel like if you go there, you feel empowered and you're, I feel like my brain just lights up and it says, this is actually beautiful. And mm. then you've got different festivals around that we all know about Edinburgh Fringe, but there's one down in Bournemouth, I forgot the name, but there's stuff like that around the United Kingdom mm. that I don't believe really gets the shine. And that was what we tried to do. I mean, we had to stop because of the pandemic, but that's mm. what it's about. Millennium Entertainment is just literally showing people the creatives around the United Kingdom and giving people who really haven't had the spotlight just to shine on um, them. It's kind of like a GRM or Link Up TV, but I think just all over the UK and different genres. That's what's really about. So how did it begin? How did you decide that this was something that you wanted to do? Was it sort of through, like, like you said, lack of light on these people and, and go from there? So when I did Room in Britain and just studying about just the, all over the UK, I realised that so many dancers, so many poets, so many artists all over the country, all over the nation, England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, really are just so sick. And I was at a point where I was supposed to move up to Manchester for work and nothing was happening. For about six months, I was basically coming into work and just kind of just feeling really unmotivated. And I realised I need to do something or I'll just end up losing so many skills that I have in my head. So I said, you know what, let me just on the whim, let me create a company to do this. And the mentality was to go to all over the United Kingdom, find certain artists through social media and then host events in these cities. So I go to Manchester, hosting an event, go to Liverpool, hosting an event, go to like Dundee in Scotland, hosting an event mm. all over the UK to do that type of thing to kind of show local talent. And that's where it all stemmed from. So is that something that you actually did or that's something that you're hoping to do? So we did it in London. We did the best of R&B. It was a great night um, in January 2020. Then right. we had the woman that was going to happen in um, a different part of London. And then we're going to have a film and food festival in London. And in December, we were going to go up to Manchester and just have a, a crazy night for Christmas. So just, just to kind of slow, slow our roll into it, because we've only been around for two years. I right. would say one year because COVID messed everything right. up. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's what, that was the plan. Right. So, so how did COVID affect everything? Like, did you have to just basically do everything online? And were you able to, like, socially distance kind of get people in and still record or COVID just I think the whole scene in general just died for I think six months nobody knew what to do right um I think creatives went crazy we're doing Instagram lives 24 7 it was cool the first week and then after that I just got really bored I was like people (laughs) like do something different um (laughs) but it was hard for (laughs) it was hard for us because we kind of had to stem from the creatives and and then kind of take them in and then show them to the rest of the world. And for six months, I don't think anything happened. So we, we our base was events. And then we, you know, we said, you know what, 
we're going to build a studio later on. So build up events, then build a studio, probably like our third or fourth year. But then, as I said before, I don't like doing nothing. So I said, let me re-engineer re it and just do a build a studio. And then three or four years, start doing events again. So that's the, that was what we did. Because again, I think everybody, I mean, this has happened in what, 100 years or so. People just didn't know what to do. And right. a lot of people in the six months ended up buying equipment to do stuff at home and can mm-hmm. kind of continue this DIY culture. Yeah. Um, but it took a good six months to be where the scene needs to be. And then we opened up with the ETA to help out. And then I was slowly, you know, reaching out to events and saying, what can we do? What can we do? And everything was outside. So we were trying to get the food and the film and food festival going back out again. There were very few films done mm. in the, because of the pandemic. So we just yeah. said, Let, let's try and talk about short films for like 10 minutes. People can go out and do mm. something. But before we were able to execute that and put out, there was the whole, oh, we're going to go for um, lockdown number two. And mm. yeah, that just happened. I feel like obviously you're someone who is, I, I personally think that you're very approachable and you're someone who is very friendly, but how do you sort of find the confidence to sort of put yourself out there and be reaching out to all these people? Because that's essentially what you are having to do. You're sort of having to reach out to people and say, hi, I want to put on this event or I want to host this. Can you do this? Blah, blah, blah. I, f- I feel like that's quite intimidating. Like, do you find that hard ever? Or is, is that something that you don't even think about? You're like, no, I need this person or something. I feel like for me, since I was young, I just I just don't care. I just <laughs> It's the mentality of I don't care. Yeah, just the mentality that, you can't fear and the more time you dwell on something because I'm I'm an overthinker and I've realized the only way to not overthink is to just quickly get it done so instead of saying <laughs> what if this person rejects me I'm like hi uh, my name is John um can I just talk to you quickly about an idea and before I've been able to say all the worst possible ideas that's quickly done already <laughs> you're already in it yeah yeah, yeah. I've maybe made a spelling mistake or two but it doesn't matter they, they've, they've already seen it and then yeah. from there the conversation goes forward and I think when you've done a couple of them, people now trust you and they've seen who you connected with. And then when you connect with somebody else, they look at your page or they've reached out to a friend that they mm. know and they're like, yeah, John's a solid dude. It's really open arms and people, I've had people actually come up to me with ideas now and said, okay, cool, that's an idea. Let's go with it. I think just the mentality of not overthinking. We have to just go out there. What is the worst that can happen? Someone saying mm. no or them laughing at it but at the end of the day if you continue growing you're going to meet the right people and build a good team and go forward from there and it's also like don't ask you don't get so it's like you just have to put yourself out there otherwise you're not going to progress are you you're not going to get any further so speaking of like adapting and diversifying and doing new things I noticed that in your militant studios bio you had something about um, podcast studio coming. That said November 2020, but I'm not sure has that come out yet or is that something that's still in the works? So it's ready. More? Yeah, so it's ready. But basically Boris was like, yeah, lockdown. So <laughs> we're ready for it. And they were like, let's go. <laughs> and then it was tier five. And then before you know it, after Christmas and then lockdown forever. But it's, just, <laughs> it's, just, it's just it's just been one of them ones but it's open it's ready to be used we've probably got one more thing i think i've seen it around a lot of people in america and some places in the uk where they've got the plexiglass just for protection yeah so i think i'm probably going to get that but it's ready to be used i think once the april stage stage two one i want people allowed to be indoors i think we're going to open our doors in because for us we did our radio show in the podcast studio and because of the whole lockdown one of our people on our shows are, um, works at GP, she's a frontline worker. So she couldn't kind of come to the studio. So we had to do like we're doing here on Zoom. Mm. And I think it's a good 
way to adapt but it's just not the same so so your podcast is actually in a in a set studio yeah so that's yeah, it's a set studio so minute entertainment minute studios are all in the same literally in a row of three different rooms so we've got the studio and the podcast studio just next to each other what are you going to do um on the podcast are you going to have like artists come in and talk about certain things that might be going on in the industry or what what's the plans or can you not say too much no, I can say everything. Um, the podcast studio is just the same way I said about and helping explore talent in the United Kingdom. I think for me, being from Hounslow and being from West London, growing up, you saw North North London, like with the Skeptors and the Chip and the JMEs, East London, you got Wiley, Retro 32. You know, Wiley, I forgot about Wiley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you had Wiley, you had, um, what's my man now? You had Getz, Kano, and then South London, you got the Storms, you got the Conans. But mm. growing up, West London, we really didn't have anybody. And I think the reason why is because we didn't have the resources that the other side of London did. And we didn't have people that were kind of helping each other out so take away Ealing Studios I don't really know anybody in West London that kind of reached out to young people and said you know what here's a place to do stuff so we've got a DJ set DJ table in the studio we've got podcast there so people can come in and use the space and learn from it and also people can actually do their own stuff as well because I feel when you've got a state-of-the-art I would say state-of-the-art when you've got um, equipment that you can use you don't need to worry about equipment as a podcast studio, especially in the way the podcast world's blowing up at the moment. If you've got a place where people can do it, you can, you know, people can come in, put their bag down and just actually do their do their best work and not need to worry. I think that's amazing that you've done this, that you've created the space and opportunity for people. This is going to be huge. I really hope that anyone who's listening right now shares this so that you can reach out to other people who are in this sort of area. I think this that will be amazing for especially when we're coming out of the pandemic and, and a lot of people, you know, hopefully we're coming out of the pandemic. But um, you know, a lot of people are sort of thinking, you know, what's my career, what's my pathway going to look like, especially creatively and thinking what spaces are even going to be available, what what is open. The fact that you've decided to actually use this time to create that, I think is brilliant. So for anyone who's listening, please keep an eye out and go and follow so that you know when events are taking place. Kind of on a different topic, from June last year, on uh, June 2020, during the whole Black Lives Matter movement sort of uprise, um, you posted on Militant Entertainment's page as an IGTV video about your feelings towards the movement, what you felt needed to happen in order uh, for change to happen. Would you mind sort of just repeating some of those thoughts and, and sharing what you feel about that to our listeners? Yeah, I feel for me, just the fact that I personally, I think the George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor situation for me, I'm um, at the time of 20, early 2020 was just, it was just a kind of, for me, a wake up call because I gave up personally. I gave up the whole um, not saying Black Lives Matter, but just the hope for change when um, the Philando Castile and all those situations happened back, I think it was 2016, when we were saying, I can't breathe and hands up, don't shoot, all those situations. And Tamir Rice was one of the cases for me. I was like, if nothing happens in these situations, what's the point of putting my effort in? Because it's just going to be wasted effort because these were clear cut cases where everyone can see, yo, there's something wrong here and nothing happened. So the George Floyd situation for me and the Breonna Taylor and the Maud Arbery for me, it wasn't the fact that it happened. It was the fact that there was a, a clear cover-up. This is a video. We're not going to admit it. We're going to hide. It was just for me, it was that it was above and beyond hiding police brutality and systemic racism. Because I think we can. there's something about admitting it and saying it happened. And there's something about, okay, it didn't happen. And we're just going to pretend it never existed. And then when the videos come out, 
and people actually are seeing this evidence, then suddenly the police are now talking about, I think for me, that annoyed me. And then I just had to speak out because I say 2016 to 2020, it was just everybody said Black Lives Matter here, there, but it was just three cases next to each other having the same situation of a black person was killed, police tried to hide it, and they waited until people got upset to do anything about it. It showed, one, a lack of humanity, and it also showed me that nobody wants change unless we actually do something. And I had to speak out about it. And I think that's what led me to put on a post and on uh, my own personal page. The, the whole thing, obviously, is horrific. And I heard this thing the other day, actually, and, and I thought it was a really interesting perspective. They were saying how it was actually it was from a Netflix documentary I was watching called They've Gotta Have Us. Have you seen it? It's, yeah, I've it, heard of it. It's three episodes and it, it's showing a whole range of black uh, writers, cinematographers, directors, actors, all of them from a, like a 70 year span of experience, you know, and one of them who was a black British woman and she was saying that she felt that in America, even though that there's horrific injustice, they're vocal about it, whereas she felt that in the UK, we act as if it's never happened. We act as if we've never had a history of racism. And my um, experience at school, I barely learned a thing about black history. So I agree with that. But I also thought, yes, the, the US are vocal at points, and especially now, but that whole part of them covering up murders, that's what it was. It was a murder. It wasn't anything else. And I think that's a really sort of interesting perspective that some people think that that wasn't a, a hidden thing like they th thought that the US are very open so I think it's interesting that you're saying pretty much that you disagree you think that they are hiding most things and I think I'd be more inclined to agree with you yeah I think as you said I think the difference between America and Britain is that Britain, <laughs> Britain we all were open about it like if something happened there was a, an incident in Wales I forgot the case but a person died in police custody and the police, before even evidence came out, said this happened and we're investigating. In America, it's kind of they wait until outriders come out. I think that's the reason why we don't really talk in the UK is because the police are very upfront. They're very, right, okay. they're very like, this happened, we're investigating. We're not hiding. This happened, we're investigating. The outcomes are similar in terms of the police get off scot-free. I think one of the cases that we saw, I don't know when it was, was the riots, Mark Duggan. And people will remember the reason why the riots started was because the police were not answering questions. They weren't telling information. But every other case previous and before, they were telling information, not information greatly, but they were like, this happened, we're investigating. I think when you hide it and when you are going out of your way to saying, we don't know the situation or, or wait for further comment, that's when anger go ensues because you are police, you are public servants. You need to tell us. Even though we might not we might disagree, it's your role to keep the people informed. I think it needs to be addressed. I think one thing that about police brutality that people really get angry about is the is the hiding factor of it. And I think when you actually are very clear saying this has happened, we're investigating, there's a level of I'll say not calmness, but the level of, okay, cool, they're taking it seriously. Mm. And then I think we realise at the end, their seriousness is actually a joke because they always get away scot-free and stuff like that. Right, so you, you think that that needs to happen more in America, that they need to kind of be a bit more open about it at the beginning rather than letting it escalate to a point where you feel like they're deceiving you because they're covering it up until someone's found out and shouts about it. A perfect example, um, a couple days ago, in fact, there was a, another, yeah, another guy was got shot in the back. There's another guy walking home in Texas. 
it was cold outside. There was a call about somebody walking around and stealing cars. This guy was walking home from his work and they were harassing him and harassing him. There was another guy who got shot in the back for simple jaywalking, which I don't understand how that's a crime in America when it's just walking mm. across the road. In the UK, <laughs> we do it all the time. You don't, you it, don't wait. It makes no sense to me, jaywalking at all, like, as it, in why that's a, an, an illegal thing or an offence. What is it? Do you get a fine for it? You get arrested. You get, no, you, you, so you're supposed to get a fine for jaywalking. But that... But, <laughs> it leads it, it i don't understand it's weird for me i say the police brutality is weird for me because when i growing up in london all my interactions with police were positive they uh ran and if you remember um the summary cross roundabout yeah and people would run across they didn't go under the subway they run across the <laughs> yeah. police the police saw us and said boys listen what's happening what's going on if a car hit you right now you're causing all this traffic we have to tell your mom and dad all this stuff like come on cut out cut out i need like a cool officer a cool officer that's cool my, my friends have different experiences with police. And until yeah. I got went to Wales from the university, that's when I had a negative interaction with police. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it, I wouldn't say I was, <laughs> I wouldn't say I was prepared for it, but I just, I knew when they were saying, they were like certain, asking certain questions or certain situations, that's when I was like, okay, cool. These are the police officers. This is what I'm, quote unquote, I'm supposed to feel around the police, which for me, I feel the way I felt growing up in secondary school. That's what everyone's police should be about. I think community policing and having that, understanding where it's a human to human situation is important i just think when we go back to the situation of hiding and pretending somebody's hired and each other and not really confronting issues that's where the problem lies i think you need to be upfront. you need to be real about it and i think there's there's a gap between police officers and i would say communities i think yeah. it's different because when i say communities I think it's black and brown people, but also low economic people as well. Yeah, definitely. But I think definitely. in America, it's black and brown people. And, and and we're sort of seeing as well, and Asian people as well. That's That's been a real rise as well, especially since the pandemic. That's also mm. been rising too. It, it's, I guess, minorities, isn't it? It's I've, I struggle using that word sometimes because I'm sort of like, sometimes it seems like there's more minorities meaning people of color than there are white people and yet the white people are still um, dominant yeah I, I don't understand that to be honest but yeah yeah the, the thing for me is that I don't I don't like saying minorities I just say the reason why I don't like saying minorities is because I think it stemmed from America if you look at genuinely look at race it was racism it all started in America yeah in terms of how we see it today there right. was in World War II black people came to the United Kingdom to help out with what was going on in uh, what the know Normandy and all the stuff was happening in, in the war, yeah. and they were received with open arms in the United Kingdom. There yeah. were cases of black people um, having babies, I think, in the north of England with British white people. Mm. But it was the Americans who kind of instilled in some of these parts that black people are bad, black people are bad. Mm. And for me, it's, these are the things that we just need to just get out of our heads. That when you do others, so in America they say aliens when it comes to immigrants. When you say those words, you think of they're not human. It's kind of going mm. to the whole Aryan race and the Jewish situation that will happen in the Holocaust. When you're when you're making it okay, dehumanizing. dehumanizing, you're making it okay. Like these people aren't the same as us. They are the same as us. Yeah. And I think that's what we. That's why. That's why I don't use minorities like that. I think genuinely, yeah. when we use certain terms, we kind of in our brains kind of make it okay to say they're not like me, or I can mm. say this about them because they're not like me. Mm. And I think like what you were saying with um, police officers and stuff, it's, I mean, I don't know what the tagline is here, but we're very much always hearing protect and serve, at least in the US. I'm assuming it's the same notion here. 
that's what you want to see and have proof of, isn't it? To be protected and served by police, not fear and lied to. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that same IGTV video that we were talking about um, earlier, you encouraged white people to DM you and to have a conversation with you. Did you have much response from that? Did you have many of your white friends speak to you and try and reach out? Yeah, a lot of them did. And it was kind of weird because they were the same people that I would I would chill and talk to in uni. And I think it was, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way in one reason, because I, f- I thought people did it because they felt guilty of racism and systemic racism when that was never, that. I, I don't like it when people come across like, oh, I'm sorry for racism. It's I think we're past that now. I think it's not oh, I'm so sorry that this person was racist. No, what, what do we need to do about it? My mentality was people need to come to me and let's talk about it. But I watched an interview of Daniel Kaluuya. He had an interview with this American podcast in America. And because he said, a clip was taken out of context where he said, I feel that I'm a human being and then a black person. But he said, that's not what I fully said. What I said was, that's what we should feel. And what he said afterwards really stuck to me. He said, a lot of the times we ask the victims of racism how we should end racism but the victims can't help you because they're the ones being attacked he said that we should ask the perpetrator of racism racism on people what should they do and i think the mentality for me was now is that i need to empower my white friends or even people that have prejudices i need to empower them to say these are the educational tools that educate yourselves and when you're around your fellow um, people that are saying, spouting racist stuff or anything that, um, inflammatory or stuff like that, you've now got the stuff to say, you know what, bro, don't say that. The reason why you don't say that, A, B, C, D. Because when you do that, you end the cycle. And then when you raise your children, you end the cycle. Because mm-hmm. the thing about racism is that it's an ever-going cycle. I, I personally believe we want a good age of um, black and brown people holding each other into the sunset but we're seeing in America and what we saw during the Brexit campaign of others and people saying there was a lot of Islamophobia, there's a lot of um, xenophobia. And again, with Trump, those same kind of sentiments and racism. I feel that like we've kind of just been blinded with the whole love and social media that we haven't realised. The problem is probably much worse because for me, I've never seen racists so comfortable to be racist. Mm. And I think it's, it's the white people and the people in those conversations that need to actually stop it in the bud. Right. So you're saying that basically the tools are out there. 100%. So yeah. we don't need to, as a white person, I don't need to go and speak to all my black friends and get like, asked all these questions. Yeah. yeah. I can. It's already out there. It's already out there. I think you can have a conversation and say, am I correct on certain things? Like clarifications. Right. For me, it's those just the mentality of, hi, I'm a white person. I'm sorry for racism what mm. can i do to help it should be mm. yo found this article can found this article right? it is right like bro i'm i'm dealing with this situation in school or john i'm i'm around like my i'm around some people that saying these type of things mm. i just want to double check is this right and okay cool yeah this is this is wrong okay cool okay i'll, I'll handle the situation and i tell people there's so much out there there's books i will i'll say if you want to really understand understand racism as a spectrum and the economic side of things, I would say, have you heard Georgia Poets podcast? Listen to the story of Grenfell Tower and listen to the story of slaves in, what was it, Libya? You realise that there's, there's, there's so many connections that are going on. Mm. And I, I just think it's one of those things that people just need to really understand that not all problems are solved by the victim. Absolutely. Pro- that's it. Sort of touching on what you 
briefly mentioned about school you went to I mean we went to the same secondary school and that was a predominantly white secondary school very white (laughs) um (laughs) I wanted to know what your experience was like how you felt being I mean I can count on my hands or on one hand how many black people were in my year and you were in the year below me I I mean hopefully it's changed since but you get the idea that it it was not a lot. And I just wonder how that was for you. I don't even know if that's ever been really spoken to you about or or, or whatever, but yeah, did did you sort of have any um, challenges that you faced at that school? Did you ever feel like a lack of information or representation, you know, inclusion or support? I'm trying to think of how many black people were in your year. I'm thinking I've got three people at the top of my head. (laughs) That's what I can can try and count to. I, the weird one for me, until I went to sixth form, I've never been in the majority or even, I would say, a lot around the school that was a lot black people. Even, like, people of non-white descent, I've always been around them. And I've always kind of been the minority. I've, in my second, in my primary school, there was, I think, five of us. No, in my infant school, there was five of us. In my juniors, there was about, I would say, seven of us. And then my year like seven eight of us and then it kind of went down I think when when I left in year 11 <laughs> we, we kept saying when did all these black people start arriving in this area because there was a lot of influx of black and brown people and, and the Asian com- community was starting to come I thought that was a good sign but for me in school it was a weird one I just kind of felt like you had to just rely on stereotypes it was weird in what way like as in you you had to re- you yourself had to rely on a I stereotype just think or live up to a stereotype do you mean I think everybody just did I feel like if you were Asian you just you you, you just relied on your smartness I don't think people in secondary school especially me I think my perspective that we didn't really live the life that we wanted to we kind of just like okay right. cool if I'm if I'm the black guy, I'm 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 the funny one. If I'm the black, I'm the I'm the one who's good at sport. If I'm the black guy, I'm I'm good at music. If I'm the Asian one, I'm I'm really smart and I won't I won't kind of just say anything else that I might like. You just kind of stick to the one thing that you're you're like, oh, I'm good at this and this kind of fits stereotype. I'm just gonna continuously talk about that and move, move, move. Right. Um and I think that was weird looking back at it because secondary school is when you're supposed to find who you are. Secondary school is supposed to be where you explore yourselves and understand what you like and you think that? don't like. Yeah, I, think... I, I don't feel like I felt like that at all at school. I don't relate to that because I felt very, very lost at school. Even though, like, obviously you're around friends, you don't know any different, but I never felt more comfortable once I was out of that school because mm. I was finally being exposed to people who... It, it was just more diverse, I felt, when I left. I was. I, I remember recognising that like my own ethnicity I mean I'm not I'm not I'm not black but I'm Polynesian and I did I sort of suppressed that for a very long time I didn't notice that until I I left there and the first thing weirdly actually that people said to me was that I would get um what's it called I was incorrectly racially profiled it people thought I was was Indian and things like that and it's just (laughs) yeah I got I, I got called packy and stuff like that and I just sort of thought it, it just was weird it, it wasn't that wasn't a, a a safe space for me to discover myself if that makes sense so I wondered how you felt when you like I'm ethnically ambiguous I guess whereas it is clear you are a black man so I wondered if that was a bit more prominent in the way that your experiences were so yeah like I, yeah, I didn't I, I kind of yeah you kind of took me back with that one I think it's <laughs> it's I think secondary school I said yeah, secondary school is where you're, suppo- where you're supposed to find it. Right, okay. I think <laughs> it's where, I, I mean, I mean, 
boys are just idiots and <laughs> maybe I'm just looking back at it, but the girl life in secondary school is toxic. When I, it's just, oh my days. I remember so you could be popular one day and next thing you know, you could be hated and us guys would be like, what happened? Oh, you had to be there. I'm like, okay, cool. I didn't know you could twist <laughs> so quickly. Um, I just, again, I feel like it was just a way for me to kind of survive. I did, in a weird way, my friends, a couple of my friends said it. They said I was bullied in secondary school. I wouldn't say I was, I would say I was bullied, but I didn't act like I was bullied. I just didn't take it. Like, so it would be like, right. John, I'm bullying you. I'm like, get on my face or I'll punch you. And it was just, just it was, that's, that's how I moved. And just being black, I did kind of feel, there were certain things that happened in secondary school where jokes were made. And again, I think this is where I say British people really don't know the line between stereotypes and racism like that. We're, yeah. we're, we're just always very, very close. There were times when the lights were on saying, John, smile, I couldn't see your teeth. Those type of things where when you're children, you're just like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And I think as you got older, like, bruv, this joke's died. Like, you can say when you're on your yeah. seven, your eight. When you're on your 11, like, bro, you're really, like, just you've read had book. enough years yeah, now had to a, know that that's not okay yeah and i think same thing about is that homophobia i secondary school i think we were the last generation where you can say some of the stuff you said in school in in class and just get away with it because i've got a younger sister now and she there's sometimes i used i call my friend the chav the other day and she's like that that term is horrible like what (laughs) really (laughs) when was this is like people people have been cancelled for the word chav i was like i used that word before you were even like (laughs) <laughs> saying letters let alone like where has this where has the term become offensive mm. but it was just the thing for me is that like at Simonsy when you've escaped secondary school you can look back and say you know what there was a lot of stuff that was going on but I look at yeah. it in a weird way is that everybody's trying to find their identity in secondary school and I think the easy way to do it is to kind of again kind of go to stereotypes if you're that really pretty girl in school you kind of be like I'm, I want all the attention in school and then all the guys be around me. If you're the really quirky, funny one, you always make the funny jokes. I think you kind of just stick to your lane. Right. In, in the way High School Musical, I hate that, the way I'm quoting it. <laughs> but everybody... Stick to the status quo. That's it. Everybody <laughs> did. And I think once you left school, I saw a lot of my friends who were really, really smart start saying, I'm really, I loved um, being artistic. Like they were getting straight A's and then the next thing you know, they'll be in a hairdresser. I'm like hold on a second you you were sitting teachers were saying you're going to Oxford and Cambridge what's going on yeah like yeah I just did it because I wanted to do well but that's not what I really wanted to do right. I think we all got trapped in those corners and then being mm. as a black person I feel like all black people have the mentality of you have to do well because your mom and dad you have to stay out of trouble and I did those things and I'm happy that I did them but I don't think we were able to kind of fully let go because we again stick to the status quo what is that is that to kind of like is it to kind of like keep your head down and to not draw some form of attention or like what I'm just, kind of not understanding it fully. I like, think it's, it's a survival mechanism because mm. I think that's what we, I think there's, I think there's a secondary school in general, but especially as a black person or anybody, you just kind of, you stick to that one thing that society says you should be good at. So for right, instance, okay. for me, I was, I was good at, I was good at hundred meters until everybody started to hit puberty and then, I just I just got left in the back. I was kind of the funny guy here and there. I kind of stuck to those two. Music was something I, I dabbled in in secondary school. And then once I left, I kind of fully embraced it. But you kind of just stick to those things. You didn't, for instance, the girls that were in the year below me were all, I would say, alternative music. Or um, mm-hmm. So there was a, there were two girls. One was a vegetarian, she was black. And one was alternative um, music. And like, 
emo hair rock star. And again, that didn't fit the status quo or stereotype. Mm. But if I know for a fact I loved Don't Tell Happy Music, but I would never tell certain levels of my friends about it because that's not the quote unquote status quo. I didn't feel comfortable to do so. Right. I think that's what, as a minority, that's why I think I just stayed in that lane. Do you also think that's maybe um, a generation thing as well? Like the generation that we were part of, like everyone was, because I kind of feel like sometimes when I look on TikTok or, or Instagram, whatever, and they're showing the way that the, the, I feel old saying the youth, but like the younger, the younger years, it seems like it's almost in to be whatever the hell you want, which is great. I love that. So it's sort of like, I wonder, do you think potentially then that, you know, systemic racism and all of the things that are oppressive that have been, we, we, we say that they're generational and they get passed down, but do you think because of this new influx of acceptance and learning how to be politically correct and how to, you know, all of that sort of stuff, do you think then that that is maybe being left with our generation and then the new generation are potentially taking over and not facing the same sort of things potentially? Um, yes and no. Yes, I just think everybody's more open. I think everybody's more understanding and be, not being afraid to be who they are, what they choose to be. And I think I saw that near the end of my time in secondary school, you couldn't say certain things. People were more open, be more brave. And I think with this TikTok generation and, and things that are being out, people are okay with being told you're wrong. I think that's something that our generation was really like against. Like someone said, you can't say that word. Like, I can say that word. Why not? Are you going to make me? No. Like that's hurting this person. No, I don't care about that person. I care about me. You can't say those. You can't say I can't do something. I think with this next generation, they're, they're able and understanding to learn. And I also, you know, they go for it. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think you're so right in the, fa- in the fact that our generation, it was fear. It was fear to, to, to stand out or to 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 try and be something else and it was almost like we were saying when when you and I both left that school that fear sort of left because we were no longer confined into either being a stereotype or or your status quo everyday norms so it's like having a new space to and and almost like a new body almost to be like okay cool I don't fear this I'm gonna get to be who I want to be whereas they're Mm. already allowed to do that in secondary school now they're already encouraging that when yeah. I when I was at school, I felt like it was easier to because I wasn't in any popular group or anything like that. Like I played flute and just like my mum wouldn't let me have a handbag. Like I had a backpack because she worried that I would do something to my back. Like I was not <laughs> like hot girl or any like one of those kind of um, groups. I didn't feel like I really fitted into like I didn't know what our group was. We were kind of like the the neeks or whatever. <laughs> like I felt it was so much easier to be like not seen. Like I remember me and my friend Mia like we'd go into our science class and we were like right how do we not draw attention to ourselves today like Mm. I would rather no one paid attention to us it sounds really sad because it's like I think I'd rather be invisible but genuinely like I just there wasn't I didn't feel like I fitted into anything and everyone was brutal I felt brutal (laughs) at secondary school like they would like me and Mia would look at each other and they'd be like, oh my God, are you guys lesbians? Like they'd like do anything to like rip into you. And I just feel like it's true. Like you'd leave secondary school and I felt going to uni, I felt like everyone has this mentality that they can like reinvent themselves because yeah. people don't know you there, right? <laughs> but I genuinely felt like that. I was like, I can actually be a bit more myself here. I don't feel like I need to hide. And everyone yeah. felt a little bit more kind of mature there, I guess, but... Yeah, I wonder, why, I wonder why our generation 
were so fearful to be themselves. I think it's kind of what you said, Jess, is that we were so brutal. We were, <laughs> yeah. we were so brutal. And I think it stemmed upon, if you look at everybody that has been, anybody, so for instance, the, I won't say the names, but look at certain presenters, I won't say getting cancelled, but getting questioned on their tweets. They all came from the 2012 to 2014 era. That's when we were in secondary school. I remember Twitter. I, I got off Twitter. Reason I got off Twitter because being an Arsenal fan on Twitter is very depressing. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to be upset being an Arsenal fan. But I remember the the stuff that was going on. There were there were colorist jokes on Twitter. There were um, homophobic jokes on Twitter. And the the reason why it was like that is because back then Twitter was the only way you kind of rose up to Twitter fame was to be outrageous and outlandish and to be the most cruel and brutal. And I think when that's how you are kind of seen and that's the environment you're in you your safest way is to just you know stay back and hide in the corner mm. yeah you're right I think you couldn't hide in in my school like in my, my year like that but yeah yeah I, I don't I feel like I've suppressed a lot of those memories but <laughs> I, rem- I remember your year being quite close to one another whereas I don't think my year were close but I got on with most people I, I would speak to most people but again that was that was me not wanting to um or not feeling like one group was for me you know like clicks and stuff I couldn't deal with clicks so I would just I was like a drifter I'd go to everyone I think you were very much the same like yeah I, would, I just be like cool I'd cool. happily talk to all the sporty people I'd happily talk to all the people who were really smart and you know a, a bit more reserved like I, I would talk to everyone but I wouldn't feel comfortable staying put for more than five minutes because like this I can't can't relate <laughs> I need to move like and so I think that's probably another reason why I mm. didn't enjoy secondary school very much to be honest for me I would say one thing about secondary school for me is the teachers in I've, I honestly always give them credit they were actually outstanding teachers I think they did change the environment teachers like Miss Anna Joby, Mr Jackson Mr Wilson the drama teacher legend of a guy and then Miss Santos my maths teacher she's like a legend of a person those are teachers that kind of they're the ones that people say that changed their lives because... No, I, I credit that because when I was in my lowest low of my life when I was like 17, so that was sick form, and my addict, Mrs. Adeyoda Jobby, she, I will always remember, she was the person I went to. Like, I spoke to, I, I emailed with her and Mr. Frith, they were the RS teachers. And Mr. Frith, yeah. And they, I felt a lot of comfort in them because they were they were very supportive and, and they were very good at me being loud like if I needed to debate them and get a lot of whatever was inside me out they were very good at accepting it and then challenging it and sort of molding it a bit at times which I really credit them too so I I agree I think um we had some handful of really good teachers (laughs) and again a little bit off topic but sort of tying into this so you've also shared a lot of support and solidarity for um political racial and just all over the world not just in britain mm. not just in um the us in in particular like you said in nigeria which is where your family from yep. do you think that having platforms like your music one with uh militant entertainment with uh rhythm in britain it, it has encouraged you to speak up and to um help raise awareness i wouldn't say it's encouraged me i think if, if you're under any African household, you you understand you have to speak up because I will say this, my parents need to leave a place or a meeting or anything and someone brings up the state of Nigeria, they, they will just talk for ages. They, they will be there talking. I think that's the mentality that I've always been around because of my parents. But I think everybody needs to use their platform to speak. Mm. And coming off the thing you said before about generations, about TikTok and stuff like this, 
I think we have to speak up, but I also always say to people, it's the side of the internet that we don't see that is the most scariest part of it. So people, you know, if you don't follow somebody politically, you cancel them off. I don't follow you anymore and stuff. I continue following people that say stuff that I don't agree with politically or stuff that I won't say. And reason being because you need to understand certain things that you need to understand that people's thought trains and you can combat them because a lot of people didn't see January the 6th happening in America. A lot of people didn't see Brexit happening. I saw it happening. I I, I told my whole family, I knew we we're going to leave. Reason being because everybody's in their own bubbles. And then... Yeah, you're so right in that. You're absolutely right in that. We've spoken about this before. I think I about Trump, like, didn't we yeah, say that? We were like, you follow like-minded people, don't you? So you think, oh, wow, yeah. Like Trump's definitely not going to get any votes this time because everyone, everyone I'm following, following is like-minded like me. But because you've chosen not to follow Trump supporters, you don't actually realise how big his following is. And then mm. you're shocked when it comes to the, when they counted all the votes. It's mad, isn't it? But do you, John, do you find that hard? Because I think we're so used to being told, I guess, on social media to unfollow things that aren't good for us, unfollow things that don't make us feel happy and things like that. So essentially we are, there's an element of protecting yourself and your mental well-being. But then do you also think then you're getting some sort of harm to yourself because you are not educating yourself like the full picture do you feel like you're actually causing more harm um i'll use this analogy i'll probably mess this up but um, (laughs) you know when you're a child and you go out and you get yourself dirty Mm -hmm. and it helps you build an immune system right is that same way you need to go out there and see the dirty side of the world because then you'll have an immunity to stupidity in my opinion um and okay, then, I like that that's that's very helpful actually. I love that analogy <laughs> yeah that is very helpful yeah I guess I sort of wanted to leave our last sort of question sort of to you is what does it mean to you to be a, a British black man what does it mean to you it means excellence in my mentality because I feel for years we always talk about our ethnicity in a negative mindset Okay. So like, oh, you're black and British. What opportunities do you have? I read a book. I forgot the name of it. But um, he talked about being being proud of your blackness. And actually, there's so much power and authority in it. I think for me, growing up, the lack of opportunities, it was from John Major Council, John Major and Tony Blair counselling um, local community centres. And then I remember when David Cameron made a speech about hugging a hoodie and he got a massive backlash from it because he's like pandering. I feel the way we've seen grime or we've seen certain artists move and even in the TV and film industry, especially in the last couple of years, especially with black actors in um, that's dominating America, that's dominating our British TV, you kind of feel empowered to be black British now. Mm. But when I was younger, it was it was something that you kind of just had to deal with. It wasn't something that you see on TV or you hear people talking about being black and British in a positive light. I think now I just, I embrace black excellence with being black British. I love that. Good. Good. That's great. <laughs> so we like to end the, our final question to our guests, asking them, what makes up your circle? Um, Friends for me. So my boys in university, family, people that look up from afar and then kind of just, you know, those people that don't talk to you, but every once in a while, they just might hop into your DM and say, John, I'm really proud of you. Or John, do that. Sort of thing. I think those are the people in my circle. I think you just need people to encourage you and put you on and also challenge you as well. Sometimes I do stuff and my friends are like, John, this is not, this, this is not the one, this is not the one. Um, and they're coming from a place of love. So you can just mm. 
just take it from there. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, We love to dedicate each episode to a small business, an organization or a charity. And we always ask our guests to provide us one that is close to them. If you want to tell everyone what that cause is. So for me, uh, Grandfather Tower, living in West London, living in Hounslow, uh, on a good day, on a bus is 20 minutes. And if you're from London, going anywhere in 20 minutes on a bus <laughs> dream. is it's a brilliant thing. So Grenfell Tower is not far from me. And yeah, growing up, going to Shepherd's Bush and stuff, and you would you would see Grenfell Tower, but you wouldn't know it's like that. Um, just to see how it was just, that fire blew up. I remember just seeing it and just being shocked that something like this can happen in England or even Great Britain. And just seeing how our governments reacted to it, seeing how there's a lot of buildings in the UK that still have that cladding and the government are not doing enough for it. And to see how people from my community of West London still being impacted to this day and still seeing that over 70 people dying and no one being arrested, no accountability. And because again, you got a lot of children, a lot of people in the area are going to be traumatized for, for life about that situation. And the charity really does help the community, really does help understand and fight for making sure that this never happens again anywhere in the United Kingdom and just holding the government account as well, especially council. Um, so that um, that charity is Justice for Grenfell, isn't it? Yep. So people can go and check out Justice for Grenfell. They can, what they can do? There's donations, there's tops. Just that, and, and I think also helping you understand that we all talk about racism a lot, but the class system as well. Mm. The fight against the lower economic class as well um, is something that we need to really talk about, especially because in the pandemic, a lot of people are now going to be really struggling and mm. how the government actually look after them and treat yeah. them fa- fairly and look after them and make sure they're in a safe environment is mm. at high most important. So if everyone can please go and check out Justice for Grenfell, we'll put the information on the screen now for our YouTube video. You can go and check out the information in the links in our description so that you can go and find out more, how you can help, how you can educate yourself about it. Can you please, please, please go and follow Militant Entertainment, Militant Studios, go and follow Rhythm in Britain on Instagram, go and check out all of his latest episodes, the podcast when it starts, just please follow John mj Lil j as much as you can in any way you can because nailed it yeah i just (laughs) i just i really think you're missing out if you're not following him so please please go and support john and thank you so much for joining this episode thank you very much for having me you guys are actually amazing thank you oh thank you come back so thank you everyone for listening please make sure to like and subscribe please make sure you are streaming on spotify and apple and make sure you come back for our next episode bye Thank you.